can't recommend learning this approach enough. Uh, I've dabbled in it. It's something I um, often fail at, but it's a good tool to have. I think uh, I think it makes relationships a lot better as well when you can learn how to argue. I think a lot of people think arguing is sort of shouting and falling out and winning. And often it's just having a disagreement in a really productive way. Uh, and if you don't agree, you're wrong, essentially. So I'm just going to bring in our next guest. Tommy Shelby, thanks for joining us. How are you, sir? I'm good. How are you? Thanks for having me on. I, it's our pleasure. Thanks for asking. Yeah, I'm great. Um, maybe you could just start by letting our listeners and viewers know exactly what it is you do. How do you describe your work? Well, I'm, I'm an academic. I'm a professor. I teach uh, philosophy and also African and African American studies at Harvard University. I work on questions of justice primarily, whether that's economic justice or racial justice, uh, criminal justice, connections between them. Those are the sorts of things I, I write about, teach about, lecture about. That's some incredibly serious stuff to be get, getting to grips with. I think somebody in the comments had just referenced Peaky Blinders. I, I'm, I'm pretty <laughs> sure you're probably aware at this point of the uh, fictitious Tommy Shelby. I'm aware. I'm aware. I've seen a couple of seasons even, uh, but I haven't been keeping up with it. But yes. we, we won't dwell on that. I'm sure, you, I'm sure you've heard it enough. But maybe you can tell us a little bit about your book, uh, the title of which is The Idea of Prison Abolition. Now, uh, I suppose many people will be interested to hear uh, whether you come down in favour of that or against that. Well, I like to think that I'm doing neither. That is, that as a I'm trying to really think through whether prison abolition is a stance that I should take for myself. And that the book is a kind of me thinking through that position. Uh, I think there are many lessons to be taken from the abolitionist position and the broader abolitionist tradition. And I try to draw those out. Uh, but I also, in some ways, I'm critical of uh, some of the, the arguments that are made on behalf of it and, and, and sometimes the conclusions. Uh, so I guess I'm sort of a, a, a friendly critic would probably be the way to, to put it. So it's kind of an objective passing of the arguments for and against and where you come down on, on the various issues. You know, that, that's, that's certainly, that's, that kind of approach is far more interesting to me, to be honest, to give you kind of like a, a more objective overview. So I suppose a lot of people will be hearing the words, you know, uh, prison abolition and thinking that sounds insane how could that possibly be a thing what does that even look like so maybe it'd be a good opportunity just for you to sort of steal man some of the arguments for prison abolition what are some of the, the re some of the, some of the reasoning for that approach well it's probably useful just to say something about what it is because i think um people probably have a lot of different ideas i mean it's a you know abolition as a kind of label or a movement a lot of different things run under that banner and a lot of different political philosophies uh, run under it. And they're not all, I think, consistent or coherent. So if you, the way I tend to think of it is um, there's sort of two big claims being made. I mean, one claim is that uh, the practice of imprisonment is uh, immoral in itself, kind of inherently immoral and also ineffective as a way uh, to prevent or control crime. Uh, and then the second part of the view is that uh, it is feasible to bring about a broad structural transformation in our society, maybe in our world, uh, that would create social conditions where um, 
the kind of things, the problems of crime that we worry about now would be, if, if not fully eliminated, at least brought down to uh, a level where uh, uh, prison would be an inappropriate way to respond to the problem. So, so the thought is it's, it's partly a, a, a moral critique of the practice, just like you could give of death penalty, for instance, right, or torture, right? Like this is, these are not ways that one should respond to criminal wrongdoing. You could ask that question. And also that there's a, a, a critique that uh, it's, it's not really that effective as we do it as a way of preventing crime. And part of the reason it's not that effective is because the social conditions that we live under uh, in the United States and elsewhere um, are, are ones that tend to encourage uh, uh, criminal behavior uh, and wrongful harm, uh, 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 ways of acting that harm other people's most basic interest. So restructuring those circumstances would bring down people's disposition or the temptation to engage in that kind of behavior, uh, which wouldn't require such a harsh, uh, unforgiving way of responding to it. Okay. Well, this is this is a huge topic, and you know, criminal justice, prisons, crime, all that, all the good stuff. So, if anyone's got any questions for Tommy Shelby, get them in the the comment section now, and I, I will put the best ones to him. But I suppose what I'd, I'd ask as well is a lot of people would think or hope rather that that prison primarily creates a path towards rehabilitation. Now, what do the stats show us, if anything, in terms of how that works in practice, in terms of sort of reoffending rates, things like that? Is it is it within the realm of possibility to say prison does provide rehabilitation or is that some sort of fairy tale that uh, we've been told? Well, it's hard to, to generalize about it because there's, um, you know, whether it will be uh, rehabilitative intervention is going to depend on how you do it and under what and the work conditions right so there's a remarkable variability in different prison systems about about that recidivism is uh it's a problem in most places and if you're if the standard is you know zero <laughs> you know um even in some of the best places uh that do a heavy emphasis on rehabilitation um you're, you're still probably looking at at, at 20 20 25 percent recidivism um, in some of the worst places, you might be getting closer to, to 60, 65, right? So it, there's a lot of variation. Probably it's not realistic to expect that through uh, in-prison services uh, or and re-entry services that you would always be successful in leading people to completely turn away from criminal uh, wrongdoing. And again, it will partly depend on how the society receives those who are re-entering. Uh, society do they, do they treat them as equals now uh, uh, as people who uh, have all the same rights and responsibilities as others as having uh, the standing of a full citizen uh, or do they treat them as a pariah class uh, as a as a group to be put to one side as permanently stigmatized as outsiders maybe banished from equal citizenship that's going to make a big difference so there's certain things you can do inside but a lot's going to depend on the how the society receives those once they've been released that's true. Yeah. Um, I mean, it can be sort of a self-fulfilling cycle, can't it? Coming in out of prison and then society rejecting you because of that and you end up back in, in, the, in the life of crime, I suppose. I mean, I think I thought of people you could probably, especially sort of liberal-minded people, could potentially get on the board with, you know, on board with decriminalising certain things, perhaps 
drug misdemeanors, things like that. A lot of people are incarcerated for what it seems on the face of it, like petty drug crimes or drug usage, things like that. But we get to the, I suppose, the extreme end of the scale, which is incredibly dangerous, violent murderers and people who have done much worse. How do the prison abolitionists um, make an argument for how we should deal with those type of people? I think there's probably a fair amount of disagreement about how to respond to that problem. Um, you know, some people, when they think of abolition, when they're defending abolition, they're defending a, defending a long-term project. They don't expect that you open the prison doors and let everybody out and that you never have anybody enter. They, they expect that this is that because it is uh, a part of it is, is restructuring our society and our relationship with one another. This is something that could take many generations to get to a point where you um, could say you really achieved a, a, a world without um, prisons. So there's a lot of a lot of space for um, you know debate and discussion about what you do in the meantime. You know how much uh, incarceration does it make sense to impose? Uh, you know, as you try to build this a kind of society where you wouldn't need prison as a, as a response. Um, I think, again, if you're changing the conditions that lead people to do these things, some of the, some of the violent behavior people engage in is, uh, you know, plausibly best explained by the, the structure of, the, of their social life, uh, but probably not all of it, right? They're, they're, you can expect that given the, the full range of human personality, uh, that some people might be disposed to engage in kind of serious harmful wrongdoing, even under pretty favorable conditions for them. Um, and this, so there's going to be a question about, well, why do you, how do you respond to, to, to such people? Mostly what, what people will defend is uh, the thought that some form of restorative justice would make sense in those cases to try to bring the person um, uh, around to acknowledgement, apology, turning away from that kind of behavior, some kind of reparation for the harm done, where that's possible. Um, so there's a lot of emphasis on those kinds of response, those kinds of responses, more healing responses, more uh, conciliatory responses between um, victims and, and those who victimize them. Um, but, you know, there's still the question of, uh, of the people who won't respond to that or not appropriate people for that kind of thing. And I think there, again, you're going to get different views. Some people might allow some limited uh, incarceration as a, as a form of incapacitation for, for such people. But the thought would be that this would be a really small number of people, relative to a few people you would need to, to uh, take such a harsh stance against. I mean, for me, uh, on the face of it, and I, I completely concede I had never thought about this, uh, this topic until... 12 minutes ago um <laughs> it, it feels almost like there's a strain of utopian thinking that that runs through it and um magical thinking in in the sense that you could abolish something so integral to human uh behavior and the darker side of human behavior and it work and i'm just wondering am i missing any sort of precedent or another culture or another society that prison abolition, abolitionists would point toward and say, here's a perfect model of how you deal with that. Um, well, certainly what people wouldn't point to an existing society and says, here's a society I mean, all modern nations um, have prisons now. That wasn't always true. Uh, there have been 
periods of time before the modern era where uh, practice of imprisonment would not have been very common. Some societies might have had them, but very, very few would. Um, uh, so they're not really pointing to like, well, do it like, like those people do it. Right? Um, uh, they, they are in some ways being, you know, I would probably say maybe, and it sounds like you would agree, being maybe a little bit optimistic about how malleable human nature is. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and this is a question I think really for, for people, uh, you know, uh, in, in psychology and, um, uh, anthropology who can, give us the kind of evidence to help us kind of get a sense of how plastic is human, human nature by looking at uh, what, what we're like and what we have been like over, over uh, a long stretch of time to kind of see what's, what's possible. But I don't th- I wouldn't say it's quite a kind of magical thinking or uh, uh, it is utopian, but I would say uh, at least in some ways in a good sense, uh, uh, in the sense that it's a, it's, it's an approach to uh thinking about uh, what we might become, uh, who we, we might aspire to be, and what our social relations could, could be like. Uh, and that kind of what people describe as a kind of radical imagination can be useful when we're talking about something like criminal justice, uh, where it's easy to be very complacent about the practices that we've inherited. Uh, people, when they, when they first respond to the first hear about abolition, they just think that's crazy. That's, that's absurd. How could you, how could you not have prisons? But that also shows something that I think doesn't reflect well on us who, who respond in that way in the sense that we're, we're just taking a, a really harmful practice, practice that like just really can be destructive of people's lives and, and relationships with people they care about and just treating it like a natural part of the, the world. Like, you know, how could it, how could we not have this? But I think, Whenever you engage in a practice like that, it's really important that we are always scrutinizing it and asking ourselves, could we do better? How could we improve it? Because it is so harmful. And we wouldn't have that response. Like if if you take a philosophical kind of stance, if you imagine we couldn't actually sustain imprisonment, we didn't have that as a option. And someone says, well, what else can we do? We just have to cut off their legs and and, and uh, you know, castrate them or torture them. What, what could you, we wouldn't think that that's like all you have to say in response. You need more of a defense <laughs> of those kinds of practices and just say, well, what else would we do? So whenever you're talking about a practice that's being challenged as uh, an inherently unjust one, um, you'll, you'll wanna ask yourself, is it, is it true? And I think that that's, that's a question that's worth asking, worth thinking through. And in the book, that's what I try to do to think through. Are we really talking about a practice that is inherently unjust? Is it a practice that's compatible with a fully just society? And I think that's, all, that's always a good question to, for us to be asking, even if we come down uh, in the positive. Yeah, for sure. And you, you spoke about prison there being harmful. And I just wanted to get your opinion on whether you, you're using that word in the sense of when rules and regulations and human rights aren't adhered to when they should be? Or would you say that the system is just harmful when everything goes to plan in its own right? Is it a systemic issue in general? Well, I think if, if prison involves the separation of people from the broader public, severe restrictions on movement, uh, pretty close to constant surveillance, 
um, highly structured interaction with anybody from the outside. I mean, it's hard not to see that as harmful in some ways. It may turn out that the person under the best conditions might be a better person when released, but I wouldn't say that they aren't harmed um, by being incarcerated. Uh, their relationships with their family and friends are certainly going to be pretty drastically uh, damaged as a result of that. If they have children, which many people do, uh, who are imprisoned, um, those bonds are going to be uh, uh, damaged as a result of being being in prison. And it just it takes you off your life course, right? Even if the prison terms were much shorter than they typically are in like the United States, it just like a lot of people in prison, they go in, they're very young. Your life is now shaped in ways that you, you, you know, interrupted in ways, even just the planning for like having a family and so on, because of the period of time that you're often in prison, that's kind of, you're kind of cut off from the kind of normal path of life that um, most human beings would have. So I do think of it as harmful. The question is, is whether you can still justify, there are some things that um, harm others that uh, 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 you could still justify opposing it, even though it does harm them in some, in some ways. So I don't want to, so I don't want to say that um, the, the mere fact that it harms them is a reason not to do it. The question is, if, if, like, if Jeremy Bentham is right, uh, uh, you know, prison, in prison is an evil. And the question is, uh, if in using it, can we prevent a worse evil? And I think that's the, that will be the, the appropriate way to, to frame it. Somebody just mentioned a, a stat in the comments, which I was just about to bring up myself and just wanted to get your, your view on it. I mean, we, we often hear this, is certainly across the pond, we hear this a lot, that the USA is the biggest proportion of its population in prison of any civilization in history. And I was just wondering if you, if there were, uh, I mean, I suppose the one of the optimistic ways of interpreting that stat would be to say that the justice system is just really good at catching people uh, a more negative way would be to say there's a lot of cultural and societal and maybe systemic and legal issues that create conditions where more crime is committed what, what's your perception on that stat well i certainly wouldn't say we're, we're particularly good at <laughs> capturing <laughs> people especially um you know the, the comes to closing even very serious crimes like murder you know in many places we're not doing doing that great we're not not even sometimes not even getting to 40 percent of 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 identifying uh the person who murdered someone so uh so i wouldn't say that <laughs> i think we it's a very complicated the explanation for why we have the problem mass incarceration is contested and and whatever the right answer is it's got many features so some of them have to do with uh, the way we st structure law enforcement, the, the power that you give over to prosecutors uh, to throw lots of charges of people, use pre uh, plea bargaining as a lever for people, getting people to uh, accept a guilty uh, plea. Um, some of it is the, the, the length of the sentences which are were outlier uh, in having such long sentences. Uh, so you're going to have a lot of people in if you keep them in for such a long time. So at any one time, you're going to have a lot of people in if you if the, if the sentences are so are so long. And ours are very long compared to you know many of the places uh, like, whether that's the UK or other parts of Europe and other and other parts of the world. This we're an outlier in that respect. Uh, it's in the interest of many politicians 
uh, maybe an interest of all politicians um, to appear to be uh, very tough on crime and to be totally intolerant uh, of crime and willing to, to really bear down on it. And usually uh, that means increasing sentences. Um, but we do that against a background of a pretty anemic welfare state. We do that in, a, I guess, the background of very limited social supports for people. So it's very tempting to use the criminal justice system to deal with social problems that might be better dealt with with uh, a much more generous way of supporting your citizens as they're living their lives um, uh, before, they get in, before they get in trouble. So it's, it's a complex set of issues about why we, we find ourselves uh, in this place as a, as a kind of the, the world leader in incarceration, not a, not a place you want to be. Um, but, uh, uh, and that's part, in some ways that question was partly led me into thinking about prison abolition because many of the, the abolitionists would criticize reformers for not seeing that something deeper is at work and that simply trying to change prisons and sentencing is, 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 is insufficient to deal with a problem like mass incarceration, that is something deeper about the way the society is structured and maybe about uh, the way the role of global capitalism and structuring our relationship with one another, that those things need to be attended to and not just a focus on um, crime and law enforcement. I mean, this is perception in the UK as well. It's certain, I mean, there's been certain studies on this or, you know, case studies certainly about people going into jail for certain crimes and it's the, possibly their first offence, whether it's a violent crime perhaps, and then finding out the only way they can sort of survive in that climate is to join the dominant gang in, in there. And they, they can come out sometimes with a far worse ideology or, or penchant for criminal activity than before they went in. I don't know if there's this feeling in the American uh, prison penal system as well, where there's something similar might happen to people. For sure. And, some of that is uh, an understaffing issue in, in the prison. So you, if you're trying to maintain some order in there, it's if, with very limited staff and, and often poorly trained staff at that, um, it's very tempting to use the, 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 the structure of gangs to try to bring some kind of control to the internal life of a prison to, to use the, the, the hierarchical structure and the, the bonds of solidarity within gangs to try to keep peace and to deal with problems as they arise. Um, and in and, and the US, as I'm sure in other places, um, uh, has, it's unfortunate that many of these gangs are also racially marked. So it's not, they're not just, they're not, not multiracial street gangs as it were, right? I mean, these gangs are, are, are often divided um, between um, whites and Latinos and blacks. And uh, uh, so you reproduce that antagonism between um, these groups within the prison that exists in the wider society. So that, that, that problem definitely exists. Uh, it's a complex one. Uh, you know, I would be inclined to think a lot of that has to do with how little we put into in prison services and the structure of, of prisons, how, and, and how little we put into the training of staff and to maintain consistent staff, not a revolving door of staff. Um, because otherwise, you, you, you're not going to be able to maintain order with so few people, uh, correctional officers in the, in the prison. So you're just never going to fall back on these other kind of systems of, of order, despite their obvious um, downsides. 
Okay, well, an- another question. It's a bit of a left field one, so I apologise if it's not in, in your wheelhouse. But there's always this perception from people who are advocates of the death penalty that it's a much cheaper alternative than keeping someone in prison for life. Uh, but Molly here has just mentioned, or more of a question, death penalty is more expensive than many years served. Is that right? I don't know if you happen to have a grasp on the comparative cost of somebody serving a long length of time or being, you know, facing the death penalty instead. I don't know offhand. I mean, you know, uh, what I have read suggests that it's it's extremely expensive to uh, put someone to death. Um, of course, uh, abolitionists and even many non-abolitionists like like me um, are not don't favor uh, the death penalty at all um, and see it as another thing to 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 oppose. But I gather it can be uh, uh, extremely expensive to to carry it out. And people are still being held often for many, many years before the the, the penalty is actually imposed. Do you see any or make any arguments in your book for a uh, sort of middle ground, perhaps, where, you know, reform uh, in the prison system would be more helpful in terms of incarcerating people for crimes that some may consider uh, of lesser significance? I do. I try to think about, you know, if you make a distinction between um, abolition and moratorium is would be one way of, of capturing it. So if you think of the abolitionists is uh, aiming at the, at least eventually to the, uh, completely ending the practice of imprisonment, if you can create the conditions for that, right? That's one kind of position. But you might think that uh, as I do, that the practice of imprisonment is not inherently unjust in many places, certainly in the United States, but not only in the United States, it's practiced in an unjust way, and it's hard to, to actually justify to the people who you're holding. And so you might think that it's appropriate to take a, a moratorium position on it, which doesn't, doesn't suggest that you think that there are no conditions under which imprisonment would be justified, but it might be that it's not, at least not fully justified under the conditions that we currently live under, and so we should cease it or dramatically scale it back until we could create conditions where it would be just fully justified to, to use it uh, to, to, prevent, to prevent crime. So you can, you can imagine the kind of continuum on uh, a moratorium from the most radical position, which would be, you know, release everyone, admit no one until you create more just social conditions. That would be the most radical. And, but you could imagine more moderate positions where you, you thought, um, you know, you really only use it for the worst crimes, the ones that cause great and irreparable harm to others, right? Um, and that would narrow the range of people. And then you could have a decarceration effort where you release many people, find other ways of doing people who have not committed crimes that cause that kind of great and irreparable harm or trauma. Um, uh, so, you, so I think like that's the space that's, I think, productive Hmm. when we're thinking about the, the, the here and now and not the, the aspirational utopian future that we might want to bring about, the thing to do is to uh, think about some kind of moratorium. Maybe you, you need to close some prisons. Maybe and when you do close them, uh, you, like my friend James Foreman would suggest, when you do close them, make sure they're smaller. Than, make sure that if you build any new ones, that they're smaller than the ones you close, right? So you're reducing the, the size. You're not just creating greater capacity to hold more people. So I do think it's important to, to, to focus there if we're thinking about the here and now. 
uh, philosophers love to think about the future and what and what's ideal. But I mean, <laughs> if you think about the here the here and now, you it's like maybe we need to dramatically restrict its use for only certain purposes, and obviously change the conditions under which people are being held. That's a great answer, Tommy. Thank you very much for speaking to us. Maybe you can just let people know where they can pick up a copy of your book. It should be in, in most major uh, uh, bookstores, certainly online and most major booksellers, uh, uh, even in the UK. So uh, uh, it's the idea of prison abolition is published by Princeton University Press. And uh, there's, there's also an audio version if, if that's your, your preference. Awesome. That should be added to my reading list for sure. But thank you very much for speaking to me. I've learned a lot and I really appreciate your time. My pleasure. Thanks for having me on. Take care.